In forensic psychiatry, you're looking for diagnosable mental illnesses. Those generally have a, you know, an onset and a course, and there's a history, so you can trace that out if you're studying, say, a person who's accused of a crime, and maybe they're saying that they met the definition of insanity at the time. So there's going to be previous symptoms, unless it's a very young person maybe having their first episode, there's going to be previous symptoms, previous treatment, possibly previous hospitalizations. And so you can analyze all of that and, and come, come to conclusions. And sometimes, of course, there's a battle of experts where one forensic psychiatrist or psychologist might say they do meet the criteria for whatever the legal definition is in that jurisdiction. And another one would say, no, they don't meet it. So it's not as if it's exact science 100%. You're listening to No Stigma Nevada, a podcast dedicated to issues of mental health in the Silver State. I am your host, Kim Palchikoff, a licensed social worker, an award-winning journalist, and mental health advocate. I have lived with bipolar disorder for over 30 years. I'm the third generation in my family to live with a mental illness. Today I sat down to talk with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Joe Simpson on April 21st of 2023. Already three shootings in the span of a week of April had shocked the nation. Shootings are nothing new to Dr. Simpson, a Nevada psychiatrist specializing in mental health and the law and who has studied criminal behavior for more than two decades. Before moving to Nevada, where he currently works as the Associate Chief of Staff for Mental Health and Chief of Psychiatry for the VA Sierra Nevada Healthcare System, he was a supervising mental health psychiatrist at the Men's Correctional Health Services in Los Angeles County. Dr. Simpson, can you tell us about yourself and your connection to mental health? And I know we're here to talk about guns today, but maybe talk a little bit about what got you interested in that topic. Sure. So I started off in a combined MD-PhD program, and I was specializing in brain imaging, neuroimaging at that point. So I did research in that area. And then I started general psychiatry residency at UCLA, and I started to get more interested in the general field of forensic psychiatry. So in my case, it was mostly because I was interested in violent behavior, particularly violent behavior that's driven by psychosis, so delusions primarily, and things like the insanity defense, which I at that time knew very little about other than just somebody who's read normal sort of media would know. But I got interested enough to start a forensic psychiatry fellowship after I graduated from residency. And for the next, say, decade and a half, I did a lot in that field after I got out of the fellowship. Forensic psychiatry really means anything to do with the interface between mental health and the law. Often an expert is needed to help either a judge or a jury make decisions in a criminal case or a civil matter. It's very broad. It could encompass any of those things. It's not like some people think, oh, you're going to like profile a serial killers or something like that. That's really not what forensic psychiatry is about. It's much more about evaluating people for their competency to stand trial, sanity at the time of the crime. In civil cases, there might be emotional damages, mental health injuries, things of that nature. So it's very broad. My own situation was mostly criminal cases, primarily the competency and the sanity Could it be argued that anyone who commits a violent crime shoots somebody, knifes them, they're somewhat insane? 
You know, the, the general public often says that, especially if there doesn't seem to be a clear motive for the for the crime. But in forensic psychiatry, you're looking for diagnosable mental illnesses. Those generally have an onset and a course, and there's a history, so you can trace that out if you're studying, say, a person who's accused of a crime, and maybe they're saying that they met the definition of insanity at the time. So there's going to be previous symptoms, unless it's a very young person maybe having their first episode, there's going to be previous symptoms, previous treatment, possibly previous hospitalizations. And so you can analyze all of that and come to conclusions. And sometimes, of course, there's a battle of experts where one forensic psychiatrist or psychologist might say they do meet the criteria for whatever the legal definition is in that jurisdiction. And another one would say, no, they don't meet it. It's not as if it's exact science 100%. But no, it's not the case that anybody who does something violent has a diagnosable mental illness that you would, you know. If they do or if they don't, what effect does that make? Well, it's a very good question. So in the criminal system, you have various protections in our country. You get the right to an attorney who's going to put on a defense for you if you can't afford one. And the first thing that needs to be determined is, do you even understand what's happening? And that's actually the bulk of criminal forensic psychiatry, I would say, is evaluating people who haven't even gotten to the trial because their capacity to do that is in question. And so often those people are found not to be competent, and then they have to have treatment for restoration. But once you get past that, if a person does put on a defense of insanity, it, it's going to vary by state because each state has different rules about even if that plea is available. Most states it is about 46. But then the definition varies. So some states, it's you could say easier to get found not guilty by reason of insanity and other states harder. But let's say we've gone through all of that and now the person is found not guilty by reason of insanity or whatever the term might be in some places it's other things in canada they call it not criminally responsible but it's the same idea so someone who reaches that point cannot be put into a prison because legally speaking they've been acquitted of the crime now then the public especially after the john hinckley case back in the 80s he was the one that shot reagan yes what uh, happened with him so he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And since that case was in Washington, D.C., it was in a federal court, which had a certain definition of insanity and certain rules at that time. And there was so much outrage that they changed a lot of it after that. But people don't just get released if they're found to be not guilty by reason of insanity, which has been the fear among many people in the public is, you know, these folks are walking the street the next day or something like that. And that's not the case. And in fact, depending on the, the charge, sometimes people who are found not guilty by reason of insanity spend more time. They're not in prison, but they're institutionalized. They may be in a, a secure mental hospital. So depending on the, the case, sometimes it's actually not a good idea to go for that plea, even if you think you could. If the prison exposure is a few years, you'll do those years and you'll be done and you'll get released and it's over. However, if you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, there's a potential that your hospitalization could be extended if you're found to be dangerous. So people can end up spending more time not free. You know, there is a difference, of course, between a hospital and a prison, but in either case, you're not leaving. And so unless it's a murder or something very serious, most people don't try for the insanity, even if they could. 
But how do they know the difference if you're trying to prove that they don't know the difference between right and wrong? That's a good question, but we have to go back to what I said. But you don't even get to this point if you're not competent mm -hmm. because it's considered in the U.S. and probably most countries that it's not right to prosecute someone who doesn't understand what's happening. And whether that's because they have dementia or they're a child or intellectual disability or psychosis doesn't really matter. You, you, if you can't assist in your own defense, you should not be put through the whole system. So the question of sanity in a criminal case is at the time of the crime. And the person would need to be restored if they were so ill when they committed the crime that they can't meet a competency standard even to proceed with the trial. They get restored, treated. And if they're found to be able now to understand however many months or years that takes, then you can still assert insanity because now you're better, but at the time the crime occurred. Mm -hmm. So to your second question, which is how could someone meet that criteria? So you kind of hit on the two possibilities. Either they didn't know what they were doing or they didn't know it was wrong or they thought it was the right thing to do. And the first one is pretty difficult. Generally speaking, when people do things, they know what they're doing and, and what's going to happen. Now, you could make some exceptions. People are using drugs or alcohol. Maybe they're, you know, completely confused. But generally, that doesn't get you an insanity defense because you chose to ingest whatever caused you to, to be in that situation. Now, there's exceptions to that, too. But just to keep it simple, it needs to be something that's due to your mental illness, not a substance you took. So usually people do know okay, I'm punching a person or I'm shooting a gun or whatever. They don't think it's something else. That's kind of a mythical idea about mental illness. People don't think that they're squeezing an orange when they're strangling their wife is the old cliche. That's not really something that happens. But often people do not know that it's wrong. And the easiest one is like a self-defense. So people think that guy is about to shoot me and I better shoot him first. And so the, the easiest way to win an insanity plea is where if the delusion was true, it would have been a justified action. Like killing someone in self-defense that you think is going to kill you, you will not be found guilty of a crime if it was legitimate self-defense. Now, if you thought someone was trying to kill you, they actually weren't, but you thought that they were, then you didn't think you were doing something wrong. And if the defense can establish that you really did believe that at that time, that's a pretty good way to get an insanity defense, much easier than some other ones, which gets more complicated. What got you all interested in this field of psychiatry? I think it was that basic question of why do people commit acts that we're all kind of conditioned from young ages to know that they're not good things to do and that even if you don't really care about other people, you do not want to get caught or, and punished. So very few people commit violent acts. And for a long time, I've been curious about people who sort of overcome that due to their illness. But not that I didn't do other things. I've always done other more traditional types of psychiatry clinically throughout my career. And I've done other types of forensic work too, but that's always been sort of a fascination. Do you have any interesting cases that kind of stuck in your head from all these years? There's a lot of cases that are interesting. There's people who sort of have this erotomanic delusion where they believe someone's in love with them or that they're married to that person and then they pursue them and stalk them. I did a few of those cases because I was in Los Angeles 
Is that like the stalking capital of America? Or? In a lot of ways, because you have a lot of celebrities there and people on TV and things like that. In one case that I did, he had driven across the entire United States from far on the East Coast. And when I was doing the evaluation, they even had a like a, a dash cam footage of him being pulled over. It was in like Alabama. And he said to the person, you know, I'm going to see my girlfriend in California. And the, the highway patrol said, okay, great, you know, have a nice day, not realizing that it was completely a fantasy. He'd never had any contact with this person. And So is this schizophrenia? Well, yeah, probably in that case it was. But what was so interesting was that he was a high-functioning, meaning like he was college-educated, he had a job, he'd never been treated, he was hearing voices for several years and having all these delusions about this person, but hadn't connected that to any kind of illness. And what I really remember about his case when I interviewed him many months later in the jail, he said that he got arrested, he went to jail. The, the jail mental health people kept saying, you need to try the medication. And he said, no, I don't, I don't need that. Why would I take that? And he's hearing voices all the time. And then eventually he sort of gave in and said, okay, I'll try your, your medication. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, the voices went down immediately and in two weeks they were gone. And you can't make that up. If he was faking, he wouldn't have said it like that. And so clearly this was his experience. And when I saw him, he was totally normal. And all the delusions and everything were gone, which is actually unusual. But he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, went to a state mental hospital in a few years. So what was he accused of? There was stalking and things like that. He actually had some weapons with him. He never got close to the victim, but... It was a kind of a high-profile thing. So they were kind of trying to throw the book at him. So what would be a more kind of, say, typical kind of forensic case? Yeah, that's a good question. They're all different, and it really depends on what you end up focusing on. And there's some experts who have become very prominent that write books and articles, and maybe they'll focus in on a particular category. Maybe it's a neonaticide, the murder of a newborn, or maybe it's some other family crime, or... Some people will specialize in other types of, of violent crime. And then some people will do anything that comes their way, criminal, civil. Some people specialize in like workers' compensation. So completely different, completely divorced from what we've been talking about, but still within that interface between mental health and the law. Tell mm -hmm. us what your thoughts are on guns. Some people do say, wow, this country is so kind of obsessed with, with guns and violence. But, and the Second Amendment. Right. But... The access to guns really has not changed. I don't want to become too political here because that's not what I focus on. But you could get into, well, what type of gun and how much ammunition it holds. But the truth is that throughout American history, people could get guns. But we didn't have the kind of, at least these mass shootings that are so common today, was not a thing in the 70s, the 80s. I'm not talking about like political stuff because, of course, the U.S. went through a huge violent upheaval in during Vietnam where there were bombs all the time. But that's a separate thing. People can grasp political violence for political purposes, whether it's in this country or another one. But in terms of like the random mass killings that sort of almost happened pretty much constantly now, you can't really say that that's because we have so many guns unless you have a reason for why that didn't happen 30 years ago, 50 years ago when we had certainly the ease of acquiring guns was no different. I would say that you have to break apart these tragic, senseless mass shootings, like the school shooting kind of cliche. When I was young, that wasn't really happening, but 
there was this phrase they used to call going postal because yeah. a few postal employees, for whatever reason, took revenge on their coworkers when they were fired or whatever. It was, again, tragic and terrible. It, and it was never common. And that's not the most common type of gun violence. But there's been an increase, I think, certainly in the frequency of those kind of crimes. And no one knows why exactly. I think, sadly, it's more of like a social contagion where you had like the Columbine tragedy in, back in 1999, which is kind of one of the first really heavily publicized ones like this. And that wasn't the first one, certainly, but it was sort of a huge media event. Books have been written. And then you have the internet coming into play. And unfortunately, I think that there's a certain segment of the society who they see that and they, in their despair, for whatever reason, they kind of want to imitate that. Sometimes it's very obvious. Either they get stopped before they do something terrible or after they perpetrate the crime, either they're interviewed because they survived or they find something they wrote or that they studied. They had worshipped these guys or admired these guys in some way or another tragedy, the 2012 Sandy Hook that person had sort of wanted to exceed the, quote, body count of other killers. So we didn't used to have that. You can find other isolated incidences like the Texas Tower in 1966 or whatever that was. But nobody copied that person and did it the next month or the next year. And I'm not saying every person that does a mass shooting idolized some other mass shooter, but that seemed to be part of the reason. And it's why a lot of people are advocating to sort of decrease the focus on like the motive or the putting the pictures out. Like in 2007, you had Virginia Tech and the news. They played the videos that this person had done and showed his pictures posing with guns and sort of making an anti-hero out of the perpetrator, which may actually sort of encourage other people. How come all of them are men? That's a good question. They're not all men, but it's vast majority is. If you look at a jail or prison population in the U.S., it's about 90% male, and that's been true forever. So men are just more violent, more aggressive. That's kind of indisputable statistically. Any type of violent crime, you're going to have more men perpetrating those than you will women. But it's not as if it's never happened with a woman mass shooter. It's just very rare. There's almost no female serial killers. Serial killing is a completely different thing from a mass shooting, of course. They're trying not to get caught. Sometimes they go on for years. No matter what anybody wants, there's more firearms than there are people in this country. <laughs> so we're in a position where we're going to have to do something with that fact, right? Some countries like Australia and New Zealand, they're very, very small. Their population is like smaller than California. In the case of New Zealand, it's like smaller than L.A. They could get a lot of the guns from their society. That really can't happen in the U.S. I, I just don't see you got, I think it's 400 million, something in that ballpark. So the idea that we're going to copy Australia or New Zealand just seems impossible. Or Canada. Yeah, well, Canada, I think their total population is also smaller than California. But they have a harder time of getting guns, right? You can't just yeah. go to a gun store right. down the street and... Right. So those are two different things. And it is kind of circles back to our the laws that we have. There's purchasing new firearms or whatever, however you acquire them. And then there's the ones that are already out there. 
What do you think about some of these kind of proposed gun laws? Well, red flag laws are becoming more common, and that, that's something that I do know something about. So the way those usually work is when somebody has reason to think a person may be dangerous either to themselves or to like others. Like a psychiatrist. Well, that depends on the state also. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that maybe that's not who you want because we have other tools at our disposal. So usually at the minimum, it's usually police or the family. And sometimes it includes other people depending on what state you're talking about. So they can go to a judge and present evidence that says this person is posing a danger. They made these threats or they did this thing and remove their firearms if they have any and also put them on a list where they can't go to a store and get a new one. And that's usually for one year and that's renewable. So in some ways that may be a smart thing because it's less of an extreme measure than saying putting someone in jail or taking away their Second Amendment right for the rest of their life. But it's saying you're not doing well, you're having, whether it's alcohol problem, mental problem, whatever it might be, we don't think you should have access to guns right now as a judge. And if you do get a gun, you're going to get a criminal charge for that. So it's your choice. You haven't done anything criminal yet, but you're on notice now. The other tricky part is how do you prevent these if the person in question has never done anything to raise a suspicion that they're mentally ill or that they're a criminal, they're not going to be on any system. And that's one of the tragedies with a fair number, not all the mass shooters, but a fair number didn't have any mental health arrest, uh, history. They didn't have any arrests. So if they wanted to buy guns, they were overage. There was nothing that was going to stop it. Are you familiar with the Harvey Milk mm-hmm. and that whole story? Okay. So there were two victims, George Moscone yes. and, and Harvey Milk. And the perpetrator was a man named Dan White. Dan White was also a a former San Francisco supervisor. So when he went to do his crime, he went to a back door that he knew where there was no metal detector. The other reason that case is notorious is because it became nicknamed the Twinkie defense, which is a complete misnomer. In the Why pre- is that? Well, the press was like, his defense team said that eating Twinkies made him lose his mind, which is totally not what was what said. What was it? It was kind of a fascinating case because... Now, I, personally, I think probably he should have been convicted of murder. But regardless of that, he was convicted of a lesser crime of manslaughter. I thought um, he got off. Well, he kind of did. Really, yeah. He kills two people, obviously premeditated, right? Because you don't go around to this back door that nobody uses unless you are up to no good, right? So that's first-degree murder. He got a manslaughter conviction, which you know, was only a few years of jail time, prison time, I should say. Um, he later committed suicide, but that's kind of not the point of the story, but the point of the story is that his defense team said he had been having mental problems as evidenced by eating junk food. What have you learned kind of over the course of your very lengthy years about people? That's a good question. So I think one of the things I've learned is is how sometimes people may have a mental condition or problem, but it's not sort of life destroying and they actually do very well for periods of time. And that's particularly true with what used to be called years ago was called manic depressive disorder. Now the proper term is bipolar disorder. And in my course of my both clinical and forensic careers, I've met some very successful people who had some pretty bad episodes of that where bad things happened. Maybe they ended up in jail, usually not for something horrible. A few cases I've I've gone back and sort of Googled that person. I would never like do anything that was like a protected database, but people I've seen forensically of 
look them up years later and see that they're working again, you know, and, and have success. We all know how fragile people just snap. No, usually. There, there is such a thing as like snapping, but it's usually the culmination of a lot of pressure over a very long period of time that the person couldn't deal with anymore. I've done cases like that. I'll give you a kind of a simple example where in the case, the person was convicted of attempted murder and I was hired for his appeal because they were arguing ineffective assistance of counsel, meaning the lawyer defending him in the original Didn't do trial. a good job. Right. So I talked to this guy. He was in a prison in, in California and he, he told me his story, which hadn't come out in the original case, that he had been sexually molested for a period of years by a stepbrother. He ended up in a situation where someone was saying, you have to not talk about that. And, and he he couldn't handle that, and he he committed a crime as a result. It was a very spur of the moment. There was no premeditation like we were talking about before with Dan White. But this person who committed this crime sort of in a moment of blind rage, of course that happens. We have the, the classic crime of passion. So mm-hmm. if a man walks in on his wife in bed with another man, you're not going to get convicted of murder if you kill that man. You're going to get a crime, but if they can show it was just like instant you could get manslaughter. It's sort of this reaction for something. So a lot of people hire psychiatrists like yourself as part of their defense. Most of the time, I would say, in my experience, because I, I did what we call a high volume. So in L.A. County, which is 10 million people, big jail, lots of arrests. You have a lot of folks that are kind of serial coming in and out of there. These are kind of people with chronic severe mental illness, severe substance abuse, getting arrested over and over and kind of b- bouncing between the jail, the prison system, maybe the mental, forensic mental health, homeless shelters, homelessness. And so unfortunately, for whatever reason, that that's where a lot of the forensic work ends up happening. I just would like to go back to the whole red flag law situation okay. just to Let's do that. kind of explain the pros and the cons if you're talking about mental health. So some people think red flag laws shouldn't exist at all. Some people think they should be broader. Where the kind of the controversy falls is with who should be allowed to request them. Specifically, should the psychiatrist or the therapist, should they be allowed to do it or not? And that's a very difficult question. I would say that if you, if you look at the standpoint of a mental health professional, they can do involuntary hospitalization. So if you think someone is dangerous to themselves, dangerous to others, you can take away their liberty by saying you have a mental problem, mental illness, and you're dangerous. We're going to put you in the hospital. You have no say in the matter, at least for that 72 hours, whatever it is. Or maybe maybe they're not truly mentally ill, but they're threatening somebody. That could be a crime. You can call the police and say this person's making threats. It's a criminal threat, a terrorist threat. Or maybe you can't do either of those things. Maybe the person's not in your office. Maybe they call you on the phone and say, I'm going to hurt somebody. Well, you can't hospitalize that person. You could call the police, but you should also warn the person that they're threatening if you know who that is. Those are tools that mental health folks have to protect the patient or any possible known victims. If you know who it might be, you can warn them. You can call the police if they're committing a crime. You can hospitalize them. So if you then expand that and say, now, you, even if they haven't committed any crime, they haven't threatened anybody specific, you don't have enough to hospitalize but you just feel like they shouldn't have a gun. Then you're in kind of a gray area where you could be liable in both situations. 
if you do report them and then they have to go through that hearing and they lose their guns, they could come back and sue you for, you know, exceeding your authority. Well, you couldn't hospitalize me, but yet you decided I shouldn't have a gun and that's unfair. And then they go commit a crime. The victims will sue you and say, you should have done a red flag warning on this person. Nevada does have a red flag law, but it's not used that much. I had a case back when I was in, in California of a man who, he was actually very angry at some government agents. And he was an older man in his 70s. And he came to the, we had a psych urgent care that I worked in. And he told us what was going through his mind. He was having business problems. And he mentioned he had a rifle. And he was so angry at this government entity. And we said, we're going to have the cops go get that, that rifle from your house while you're here. So and you actually tell them? Yeah. And that's a case that sticks out because somebody else might have said, well, he's not really going to do anything. He's a 70-year-old guy and he's never been violent before. But he did have that weapon. And I think he met criteria to be admitted and, and whether he wanted to or not. And that's what we did. We wanted everybody to be safe in that situation. I think he was facing a bankruptcy. It was, it was pretty stressful, right? Mm -hmm. And he had a wife, I think. And that was before the red flag laws were, you know, such a thing. How do forensic hospitals differ from jails or prisons? Well, there's two main purposes for forensic hospital beds in, in most states. One is for competency restoration. And that's where all the states that are under the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals are impacted by a ruling that says that, that you have a constitutional right to get restoration services in a timely manner. And if people are waiting in a jail and not receiving those services, that's potentially going to be a constitutional violation. So a lot of the, the Western states are scrambling to, because they don't have enough beds, and so there is a, a long wait for the restoration services that the secure hospitals provide. And so people are thinking about delivering those in a jail setting. So a forensic hospital is very different from a jail because you, you want sort of a lot of therapeutic services in those hospitals. There's a lot of hospital-type activities. There's groups. There may be individual sessions with a therapist or a doctor. There's possibly opportunities for working. There's outdoor time, things like that, which you do not get in most jails because jails are designed for short-term pre-trial detention and they're really just for confinement and security and they, they have a minimum of you know jobs and classes and, and therapy and things like that. And then in, in a prison it's kind of in between those because you would have more long-term programs, school, jobs, outdoor time, but the purpose is much more corrections. It's it's much more about security and and keeping people away from the rest of the population. And a forensic hospital does that, but but it also is supposed to be treating the mental illness, which is not why prisons are built. So switching gears a little bit, the other big issue with regards to Nevada and you know crime and forensics in that whole area. I'm sure you heard was the mass shooting they had in 2017, October 1st, by Stefan Paddock, and who killed, I think, 58 and wounded 800. After the fact, 
and they investigated for months, I think 18 months, they came up with no motive. Was there, was, is there something that struck you about that case? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult because there was so little good information on that one. And, but I, I don't really think kind of like the, the movie portrayal of people just sort of being seized with an idea and then, you know, moving inexorably to it in a short time is, is, is pretty unlikely. And there's probably was a lot of history with him that no one really has come forth to discuss. And, and actually in that specific case, there may have been an intentional desire on his part to make sure that no one could point to anything as the cause. At least this is something that people were speculating about because there was essentially no social media or any kind of writings or any anything that anybody could find. I don't really think that this was a person who was, you know, like a good, nice man that everybody liked or something like that. And then suddenly turned into this, you know, demonic figure in a short period of time. That's just not really the way things work. They're usually a lot more of just sort of a long series of, of hints and clues. And certainly with the younger population, any, any teenager and virtually any young, young person who does this has almost every time there's some, what they call leakage, meaning that they were talking about it to somebody who didn't believe it or thought they were, you know, exaggerating. But then after the fact, you can, you almost always in the, certainly in the teenagers, you can, you can find people who knew that, you know, this was something that they were talking about and thinking about. But generally, it's a combination of extreme anger, but there's also kind of the suicidal impulse that's built into it as well in almost all these cases. Some of the premier forensic psychiatrists have written about some of these people and then given some terms like a, a pseudo-commando, which is someone who sort of has developed this revenge fantasy that involves, you know, being extremely powerful and taking out their anger on people who they think had wronged them in this sort of militaristic way, even though they don't actually have, you know, any true military experience or not like fighting somebody who also can fight back. But leaving those aside, usually these people have have decided that they can't live anymore, but they're so full of anger and hatred that they also want to inflict pain on other people, which, you know, some people would say, well, that's that's a type of mental illness. And it may be, but not in the traditional sense of being out of touch with reality, you know, feeling that there's some kind of actual conspiracy against you or hearing voices or the kind of things that, you know, psychiatrists study is not... It, it, it certainly exists in some of the mass murderers, but it's not universal in them at all. You could not say that the majority of mass shooters have like a psychotic condition and have lost touch with reality. That's that's not the way it, it goes. You are listening to Dr. Joe Simpson, a Nevada forensic psychiatrist and associate chief of staff for mental health and chief of psychiatry for the VA Sierra Nevada Healthcare System. Join me, your host, Kim Palchikoff, on my next No Stigma Nevada podcast.